Welcome everyone. This is our uh, monthly podcast. Uh, very excited that this month we have Jason Duke with us. Um, as a reminder, our monthly podcast of the IQU Connections. Uh, interesting stories, interesting people, and we're going to talk with Jason over the next uh, half hour, 40 minutes, may go longer, maybe shorter. We'll see. It's a conversation with Jason to learn more about him, learn about his ideas, his thoughts, opinions, experiences. Our hope is that what you'll get out of this is one or two or maybe even three items that you can apply to your own life or you're inspired to try something or you're inspired to learn something new. So uh, I hope you have a, uh, enjoy our conversation and hopefully you have a chance to also pass this podcast on along to others. Uh, to introduce Jason, uh, while growing up, uh, his family's third, three generation paint store, Jason Duke discovered his love of paint and people. Even though his father sent him to university and said, go to school and get a real job, don't get involved in the trades, Jason could not, a step, away, could not step away from this passion. While attending the U of R, Jason paid his way through school as a franchisee for College Pro Painters and was one of the first residential interior and full commercial services franchisees in the system. After 30 years, Jason continues as a leader in the industry and one of the original nine founding franchisees of Serta Pro Painters. It's the largest painting firm in North America. He prides himself on an exceptional team that consistently delivers exceptional experiences to customers and employees alike. The Serta Pro Painters team approach and certainty service system make it possible to serve all types of projects, including residential, commercial, and construction. So welcome, Jason. Very excited to have you here. Well, thanks for having me, Scott. Excellent. Well, I wanted to start off, and what caught my attention in your bio, and, and I'm trying to get my head around this, a passion for paint and people. Where does that come from? Well, how, does that, how does that still exist today after so many years? Where is, what, what drives you with painting and people? Well, uh, traditionally, um, you know, like my father said, go get an education, get a real job, don't get involved with the trades. But what I found was that, you know, the real people that I love working with are actually in the trades and the customers I deal with every day. Um, uh, you know, uh, whether you see the people in corporate America or corporate Canada, you know, the fake it till you make it kind of syndrome or the CYA cover your ask. Can we say that? Um, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Odds <laughs> are I'm going to swear before this is done. So. Okay, so we can swear no problem all the time because it's going to happen lots probably. Okay. Because, um, you know, uh, us tradespeople are real, right? So we use uh, our vocabulary to the fullest extent, I say. Mm -hmm. <laughs> True. <laughs> so when you, when you think about um, uh, building an exceptional team, and that really caught my attention about you know, that you have an exceptional, exceptional team. You seem awfully proud of that team. How did you, how did you set about creating and finding the right people to, to build out that team? How did you do it? Well, again, uh, traditionally you're either chasing work or you're chasing people, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes you're doing both. If you're a good manager um, or a CEO, um, you, you know, Basically, you, you build a culture that uh, everybody loves being in. They love the customer. They love what they're doing. Um, that cultivation of love, you know, generates energy, right? And that energy 
inspires people to be audacious and do the right thing when decisions come their way. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so really it's about creating an environment that uh, people want to work at and, and have fun. And, and, you know, we still have the mantra from the old college pro days, work hard, play hard. Um, now we're a little bit older and we don't play as hard as we used to, but the, the, the sentiment is still there in the fact that, you know, um, you know, we believe that we're putting on a show in a customer's home. We're always the away team, right? So <clears throat> if you consider it a, a stage play or something like that, you're, you're always performing in somebody else's backyard, usually their home or their office, whatever space that they want to transform. And, and so to do that properly and consistently, you have to have the right people in place in front of the scenes and behind the scenes to make that work. And that's been the real key of Certa Pro Painters is the ability to find those right people, you know, find uh, and, and retain them and keep them into doing things that they love to do. How do so that, that's phenomenal. So how do, you, how do you know they're the right person though? How do you figure that out? Um, well, in the beginning, it was lots of trial and error. <laughs> um, now we have systems in place. So, um, well, I can take you back probably, um, we used to do a caliper on people. And then we found that we were only getting bald, fat, white guys. And we said, okay, we got to change this around because um, we're not being very diverse. In, you know, that was part of how we thought that we were trying to, you know, master in and find just the right person. Well, what we got was just people like us originally. And that was really limiting to what we really needed in, in, the, in the industry for the customer and for our, for our people. So, so now it's, you know, we use a, a questionnaire when people come in and, and uh, I would say 90% of people don't even make it past the, 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 the first round of questionnaires kind of thing. <laughs> and, uh, and then we go from there and, and we hire based on, on values, period. Um, the, technical, the technical aspect of what we're looking for is secondary. Um, first of all, they have to have the, the right values that fit, uh, you know, uh, people that, uh, you know, do what they say they will do, you know, deliver on their promises. People that say that they, um, you know, perform with integrity. Uh, people that uh, want to practice continuous improvement. Mm -hmm. uh, pride in their work. And then uh, respect the individual is the last of our, our values there. And, and uh, we question them quite quite heavily on those on those items. And if a person can fit that value system, then we're comfortable that they have the foundation to fit within our culture. You know, I've, um, I strongly agree with the approach and, and the, at the conceptual level, I think many people grasp it and, and say, yeah, that makes sense to me. Of course we should be doing that. How, how do you deal with the reality when you have a superstar who is just on the edge of your values. It's not like they're breaking them, but they're, you know, boy, they don't really epitomize your values at the same time. How do you, how do you deal with that? Yeah, so uh, we, we term that person the, the maverick, right? Mm -hmm. Is yeah. that they're, they're constantly performing and outperforming. And I've had many of those uh, come through the system. And at first, everything seems to be 
be great, right? They're making the company lots of money. And then you find out that, hey, there's uh, um, some value systems here that we thought were in place that just aren't. And, uh, um, you know, in one instance, um, that was a, a production lead that I had that was running quite a few crews. And I actually had to get rid of everyone in that division. Wow. Right? So it was a, uh, because it was straying too far from the culture. And it, it was almost like a reboot on the whole corporation, on my whole business. So that was about 10 years ago, actually. How long? Wow, that, um, that probably caused a little stress. Um, <laughs> yeah. Or maybe, maybe a lot. <laughs> But you know what? It, it is stressful in the beginning. It's one of those, uh, what I call OSMs, right? The oh shit moments. Yeah. And, and uh, then you look at it and you just say, you know what? But that's the right thing to do. Um, if, if you have people, right, right those that people that was in a, in, a, in a supervisory position and, you know, they're bringing in people that don't have the same culture, it just starts to permeate down through that whole that whole business unit and pretty soon you, you can't recover it. And, yeah. uh, you know, I tried keeping on some of the guys that were within that business unit that were lower down on the chain and, uh, you know, eventually it just didn't work out. When, um, I, I know what you're talking about the, and you've probably been better at this than me, but it's always in, in hindsight when I finally have taken some action and the rest of the company says, Oh, thank God. What were you when were you going to deal with that? Why did it take you so long? Yeah. Um, how did you find it when you took those steps where you had to make that massive change? How did the rest of the company react? Well, and that's exactly it. They said exactly the same thing. And I says, well, why didn't you tell me? <laughs> like, think I have a magic ball, a crystal ball that like, yeah. knows what these things are. And, like, and, and, I, and one of the things that I said to the person I can still clearly remember the conversation i said look we have to be self-selective we have to be that everyone around us right has the same values and if you think that somebody is is not living up to those right you've you've got to uncover it because the, otherwise you're endorsing it as well like you, mm -hmm. you can't just leave it on one person and if i'm enough removed that i don't see it um uh, you can't count on that. So um, now even with my job site supervisors, which are a couple layers down, um, I tell them their crew is, you know, you have to treat your crew as self-selective. If, if they're not providing, uh, you know, you the, the best productivity or the best values and, and, you know, you don't trust them, right, on site to leave them alone or whatever the issue may be, that's an indication that they don't belong on the team. Select them. So to use, you use the word, uh, I think the word self-selective. Uh, this sounds like you've selected them, but how, many, how, how, uh, how often do you find? What I mean by self-selective, Scott, though, is that they're actually selecting themselves, right? Yes. yes. Because it's their behavior, right? Yes. I'm just reacting to their self-selection. I gotcha. I gotcha. How many people um, voluntarily recognize that they don't fit within uh, your business at Spiritapro and look around and say, wow, they were very clear with me. I obviously, I don't, I don't fit and I need to move on. 
Um, it, it happens rarely now. So in the last two years, I've had one person that has come to that. Right. And, That's impressive. Uh, yeah. So, um, and the rest of them are still around. I would say that there's maybe, you know, one to 5% that might be just collecting a paycheck maybe. Mm -hmm. but, uh, I would say that the, the, the vast, vast majority are, are uh, on the other side of things looking to make a difference. Yeah. When you, um, when you think about your responsibilities um, as a leader within the business, how do you, how do you, how do you define leadership? What does leadership look like when you think about, Hey, I'm doing a really great job as a leader or, or others are exemplifying what you think leadership should look like at, at sort of pro. Well, so the the technical version that I would use would be that uh, you know you've uh, created an environment for everyone to thrive and and do their best. Um, the The thing is, is with that technical um, uh, definition, I would say that it it really downplays how hard that is. Yeah, and and. You know the instances where you know what sometimes it's not going to be a loving um, environment because you have to still hold people accountable, right? Mm -hmm. And and um, and I would say when my new definition probably would be when the pers the the people in your organization organization aren't afraid to tell you anything, right? That's when you know that um, there's nothing that they could do that would make you love them any less, right? Mm -hmm. That's when you know that uh, they have complete trust in you, right? Yeah. How have you, um, I've had that where team members have come to me and have delivered a message that I, I really didn't want to hear. Yep. And in my gut, I know they're right, but it was just the timing was off or or I moved into a defensive mode. How have you handled that when you've got a message from a team member where they really have taken a pretty big step to tell you something you don't wanna hear and you're not reacting as well as you would like? How do you, what do you do in those moments? How do you, how do you get that right? Because <laughs> I'm not I sure don't know how many times, <laughs> yeah, I don't know how many times I could say that I had regret. It's been a lot, right? Yeah. Because yeah. it's, you know what, no one is perfect. And, and uh, um, you know, you just hope that you have enough experience that you, that you can see what's happening and step, take a step back and see what it is there for, right? Um, what it really means. Yeah. Uh, I would say that I've handled some, you know, great and another ones that were disastrous and everything in between. Um, How'd you, what'd you do after something was a disaster? What did you do after that? Um, well, first is foremost for me would be the relationship. Yeah. And so I would, I would try to at least put it out there that uh, the relationship, you know, besides, um, you know, our, our business relationship, our personal relationship um, should continue to be strong. Um, then I would move into, um, you know, you know, 
I say too that sometimes you force people to make other decisions that you don't like, and then you regret it because you didn't spend the time on them. So, so I would say those are the majority of the ones where I would say that um, you you leave the the door open for when they're ready to come back. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, you know, you, you have to go with. You know, if they've made the decision um, uh, to to leave or whatever the situation had to be at that time, is that uh, um, you know stuff happens, shit happens for a reason sometimes, mm-hmm. and uh, I try to turn it into an opportunity. So I work my butt off to find uh, you know even a better person for that for that role. Yeah. Yeah, one of the things that in your you can give me any insight into that because that's like (laughs) it's one of the hardest things, right? And and you can read every business book under the earth, and they don't tell you about all the intricacies of those situations. Yeah, I I find and I find business books in general that um, often they are um, too simplistic in nature that the, the prescriptive model of here's the four steps for something when the reality is, is that it's often very messy yeah. and, and the ability to really kind of make sure you maintain a focus on the individual that is in front of you and without losing sight of the needs of the overall business. And I haven't found anything that's properly explained to me how to balance those two things effectively. I've got a long list of, of major mistakes, um, a long list of, why I'd really like to have a redo on that one. And then there's been the one, and I'm curious about how you deal with this, is that there's no good answer and you've got, you've got to make a choice. And, and when do you decide that you're going to put the individual over, over the broader team? And when are you going to put the broader team over the individual? Because sometimes I find for myself, I'll pick the individual in some situations over the team because I just, my sense is that it's the right thing to do. Um, how do you handle those situations? What's, what's your approach to that? Generally, I would agree. Um, in, in some situations where I've had um, tension in it, and uh, it's, you know, say between a report or someone else later on in the team, right? that I didn't have before with a different person there. Sometimes it's just about, you know, teaching or coaching style, right? Um, and, and, and sometimes it's just that, you know what, they're not ready, right? Yeah. And, and, and so I would say that, like, again, you're asking the most difficult questions on people management and leadership that there are here. And, and those are the ones that, you know, you, you keep you up at night and you think about and you have regrets and then you, and all you can do is try to, try to be, be true the next time it comes up. But I would say generally, um, I do tend to pick the person over the team or the org, especially if the values are honest and intentful mm-hmm. and just work on coaching, right? And and work on some things that they need to do to, you know, to, to perform properly. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, you talk about the keep you up at night moments. Um, 
you do want to have those few and far between, but sometimes they seem to just come all at once. And, uh, and it over seems overwhelming at times. What do you do personally when you're facing a massive workload? There's a lot of challenges that you need to face. What do you do for yourself in order to be able to keep those things in perspective, to maintain that, that level of energy that the team is looking for from you? How do you do that? Um, very poorly lately. So, okay. <laughs> Good to know. Um, so that's one of the things that I've identified in my uh, <clears throat> strategy for <clears throat> this coming year is my, my body and my energy is, is lacking. So uh, along with my workload, I also put in about 700 hours of volunteer uh, service. Um, and, uh, um, and I've been finding, especially this year, um, you know, I just don't have that energy anymore that I used to. And uh, I've put on some weight and my knees don't work and my shoulder sometimes works. And, and, and so that's one of the things that I'm really looking at. See, I, I used to play competitive sports. I used to, um, you, know, um, you know, seven, eight years ago, I was still playing sports. Um, since my kids got busy with their own sports and stuff like that, I've let that uh, fall behind and kind of cut it off. And now I'm realizing, hey, I got to get back to that because, um, you know, it's it's just like uh, what they say in uh, the airplane emergency uh, situation, right? You got to put your own air mask on first um, before you help somebody else. And uh, so that's one of the things that uh, I'll be working on really hard um, in the next year here. Um, I've got some, some friends that uh, are in that business. Uh, I'm going back on some protein shakes and some uh, less eating and being more intentful with my eating. Um, mm -hmm. I also can do yoga and stretches and, you know, those are all the plans that I have to do. Um, I also have a couple vices um, that I need to cut back on. Mm -hmm. uh, but like I tell some close friends of mine, you know, uh, Abraham Lincoln said, you know, those without a vice are likely to have no virtue. So that's how I keep telling myself that I can <laughs> keep doing that. <laughs> well, I got to write that one down. <laughs> I, I got to use that. That's the that's the reconstructive reality there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, and a very good point about um, the airplane oxygen mask. About you can't ignore yourself, and especially when you've got a critical role like you do, and people are looking to you. Uh, that energy level is very important. You've mentioned about wanting to create an exceptional experience for your customers, and what does that look like? Like, how do you? What, how do you know when a customer, um, you've hit it for the customer and they are ecstatic about it? What did it take to do that? Well, well, well first of all, we're one of the only ones that actually, so, so again, when you think of the traditional model in which, you know, maybe you're picking up a car or you're going to Best Buy to pick up some electronics or um, Amazon drops something off at your doorway, um, our business model is a little different. Like I said, we're always in somebody else's space, right? And, and so to be consistent at that and to be the only in-home service uh, company that has uh, 
NPS callback. So we're actually ranked on the uh, Reichman's uh, Net Promoter Score system. Mm -hmm. And uh, as far as I know, we're the only in-home uh, service business that does that work in office. Or, and uh, and that's really telling, <laughs> like because because you you basically are in um, somebody's life for a week to two weeks sometimes and uh, um, you get to know them intimately and they get to know you intimately and uh, not that intimately don't give me that <laughs> come on now <laughs> I, I, I had a sense where the lie was drawn but, I'm glad <laughs> but uh, um, it's just natural right and and so um, you know, we follow a set of processes called the Certainty Service System, the CSS, and we train the heck out of all of our people with that. And, you know, even that training isn't enough for the things that come up about that. And everybody is different too. So every space is different. Every, per every customer is different. Some people want this and other people don't care about that. Um, so it, it's really, really difficult, and we've managed to do a pretty good job of it. Uh, we'll be hitting um, our goal was to hit at 80 NPS, and I think we're at a 72, which is unheard of in that kind of business. Like most of uh, the businesses that are, you know, selling products are just ecstatic if they get above 80 or above 70, right? So, so um, NPS has also helped us though, is that it's a feedback mechanism. Mm -hmm. So every time we don't deliver an extraordinary experience, we know exactly why. And so that's why it's so important to call the customer and, 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 and you know, as well as within our system, we have the pride walk and the, you know, the, 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 the final walk through and, and uh, their own re personal recommend. Um, the, the call a week later from, uh, from the NPS company is is really telling because it it really highlights the real good stuff and the stuff we need to improve on. And and what's really interesting about this is that you can you can in fact the calculation can lead you to a negative number in their industries such as the airline industry that fall below below zero. And okay. and so uh, to put it in perspective for our listeners with Jason's company in the 70s. Uh, this is highly unusual, and in fact, uh, top-performing companies would hit in the 60s and be very happy about the 60s. So, these numbers in the service industry, especially in the trades, are exceptional. Uh, so, it's no small feat to be hitting hitting percentages like that. So, congratulations! That's impressive. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, um, yeah, especially when those first ones on the year when they come in, you know, and you get a six or a seven. So, like. They're satisfied, but they didn't have an extraordinary experience. But right away, we're minus 100% right off the bat. <laughs> so, yeah, so uh, but usually we start off at the hundreds, right? So that's how it usually goes. So we start off the hundreds, and then you start getting the trickle down. Like a, and in and for the listeners, what it means is is what it is is a true strength of your brand. So what what it's saying is that. If you've got people that are only so-so happy about your, your company, they're not going to promote you, right? 
So engage is neutral. That's a so-so. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm. That means most likely. Right? Most likely, I would recommend them. That's an eight. You get zero for an eight. And 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 so what it means though is that you want to have more promoters in your brand than detractors. And and so um, your brand is only as strong as the promoters you have. Loyal, you know, extraordinarily satisfied customers that are that are talking about you and and, and uh, out and about. So yeah, how do you how do you get your staff involved on on your net promoter score uh, feedback? Um, so so two ways. First, we we train them about uh, training the customer to expect a call. Um, so we we don't. We don't coach the customer to give us a, a nine or ten or anything like that, but it's always helpful to get the survey completed that they know that a call is coming. That that's mm -hmm. part of the process that the call is coming. Um, and and then we also coach the, the the sales associate and the job site supervisors to make sure that you know this is a survey done by an independent survey company. If you have anything positive or negative, you know, we would like to hear about it because we want to get better and we also like to, you know, pat ourselves on the back. So make sure, you know, what, whatever your experience is that you're, um, you're willing to share it with us, uh, good or bad. Um, cause, uh, you know, that's how we improve as well. And, and then once we get a net promoter score back, um, they're all posted on the board. We have a bell that we ring, and, um, you know, when it's, when it's a nine or a ten. And uh, the, the ones that aren't, we go through them and we look for commonalities, right? Um, and, you know, they're, you know, they're far and few between, but sometimes it's we missed, you know, we told the customer we were going to cover everything. Uh, so, for instance, uh, one just recently, um, the the customer gave us a lower rating because they thought we weren't covering everything. But what was happening is that they knew that the even though the home was unoccupied, they knew that the customers were actually coming and having dinner there at night, using the kitchen, and then going to their um, families to stay while the place was getting done. It was a new home. And so they saw everything that was cleaned up and, and so on and so forth. And my guys were consciously doing that, cleaning up everything, covering everything and then cleaning it up. But what they didn't do is communicate it to the customer, mm. right? And so once the customer found out that that's what we're doing, well, then it was an extraordinary experience. But it was just that little twist of communication Right, that uh, you know, it could have been a note, it could have been a text, it could have been, it literally was a 10-second item that the JSS just forgot to mention because the, the customer is expecting to see everything covered, and it's not. Even though there was no dust or paint around, it was just that perception that oh well, they didn't cover everything like they said. It's it's remarkable how those little pieces of communication. Um, makes such a big difference. Uh, I, I wanted to shift gears just a little bit, Jason. Uh, mentoring is something that you've identified that's very, very important to you. Uh, what is your approach to, to mentoring others? Uh, what have you learned and how you do it and how to be an effective mentor? 
So um, I would say that I'm a semi-effective mentor. <laughs> I, I've had some successes. Um, I would say that I'm still uh, uh, learning as well. Um, but I, I follow a format actually that was introduced to me by Steve Farber, a friend of mine. You might, uh, he's written a few books and one of them was called GTY. And it stands for greater than yourself. Um, so basically that process is uh, first expand yourself, share yourself, and replicate yourself. Um, so um, your duty as a mentor is, is first of all to expand yourself to, uh, you know, uh, your capacity that you, uh, you know, practice continuous improvement all the time. And, and so that you have something to share. And then, and then share it completely and freely. Um, so um, I have a caveat with that though, is that if I'm going to take the time to do that, I want them to do it to somebody else as well. Mm. Right? So it becomes a trickle down effect. So, you know, um, sometimes it's a one way um, relationship, but uh, more than often, um, it becomes a, a really a great two-way relationship because you're sharing so you're you're learning as much as as what you're giving and uh, so the the give yourself becomes just automatic so that's one of the things that we've always had in Certipro is everything is out so something that I may have developed within my um, local area is freely shared within the entire system and, uh, and, and, and that openness of trying to make everyone better uh, just has worked for us. And, and you know, we have the traditional mentoring uh, packages and, and mentoring programs within the Pro system. Uh, but I'd say the ones that I've been doing personally on my own have been completely fulfilling. And then, of course, once I've shared everything that I have with somebody else, um, theoretically, um, they become, they've been replicated with all of my skills, all of my contacts, all of, uh, you know, they become greater than me, greater than yourself. Expand, share, and replicate. Um, I love that. I, I'm, one of the things that I've observed over the years, um, having, having been a mentor uh, for people, is how critical it is to determine who's the who's the right mentee and, and are you in fact the right mentor? Uh, how do you figure out if you should be a person's mentor? And then for those who are looking for a mentor, how do they figure out who is the right, right mentor for them? Yeah, so there's a, a whole bunch of, well, I can't remember the name of the book, but I came across, he's actually a local writer out of Regina here that actually has a really good mentoring book. Of course, I can't remember his name or the title of the book right now, but I can follow up with you. We'll um, track it down and we'll get it on the website. We'll make sure that happens. Um, and, and, and he's got a, a really good way of, of, of surfacing, you know, who's the right fit and who, who isn't. Um, I've used that kind of in, in mine, but mostly it's about relationships that I've had and then whether personal or within my business and then i've you know given them the challenge hey 
are you interested in this? If you're interested in, in uh, me mentoring you, you know, formally, here's a contract. And it's actually a contract that, that Mike Farber actually produced. And then basically says, hey, I promise to expand myself, give, my, give myself, and replicate myself. Um, uh, you know, and, and so what I'm doing is trying to get the people that are, they're taking that extra commitment that they're going to actually go out and find somebody as well. And then they report to me uh, on how they're doing with that. So it becomes, um, you know, if they come back and it's, you know, the, after three times that I've met with them and I've been giving and, and, uh, you know, uh, I asked them, well, have you found anybody that might fit? Well, if they haven't even approached anyone yet, I'm going to, you know, maybe hold the brakes a little bit. But generally, generally, I haven't gone outside my, my comfort zone. Like a, I haven't done a formal questionnaire or anything like that. And that's one of the things that, uh, like mentors that do it for a living, they actually have, and that's what's in this book, is they actually have you know, these are the, these are the standards that you want to have for a mentee, right? And, and then a reverse survey um, from the mentee to the mentor, making sure that they're a good fit as well. You know, what they're looking for, expectations, and you know, so on and so forth. Um, in my case, it's just been relationships that I personally know and say, hey, I think I can help this person. I um I love I love the approach and then in particular uh, the formalizing of the agreement so that you've got clarity of expectations. Um, when mentoring relationships break down, there's often that lack of understanding of what those expectations um, a person is hoping are met and then are not. And when you get explicit up front, it certainly sets the stage for a high probability of of success. Uh, I, I want a couple last questions, Jason, and, and you've built up a successful business. You're doing a lot of things right. You're, you're 700 hours in the, in the in volunteer work of the community is insane. Uh, what, what is that? That's, you know, you're doing about 15 hours a week on top of a, a very busy job. Um, what does it look like for you in the future? Where, where, do you, where do you see yourself personally going, doing, uh, being part of? Um, well, I've got um, quite a few irons in the fire, as I always do. What I call it the, it's, uh, my bench. So I have a bench for myself and a bench for my <coughs> business needs. Um, that can include personnel or capital assets, whatever that might be on my bench. Um, and, and so um, I would say in the next five years, I'll be transitioning um, into a different role. Um, I can't quite say exactly how it's going to go right now, but I see myself uh, doing a lot more um, leadership consulting, possibly. Um, instead of being operations, uh, go more into C-suite coaching, probably. Um, um, but there's uh, some exciting things that are happening in the next uh, year or so that uh, will, uh, will I'll, I'll either, it, it's a huge risk, so we'll see how it goes. Um, um, but uh, the leadership stuff 
um, has always been uh, uh, an interest in mine. Um, I've been a student. I still am a student. I think all of us are um, since the day I started, and and uh, uh, I'm always trying to get better. So um, I think that I can. Uh, I think that I'm uh, ready in my in my where I am right now in my life. I'm ready to to share that even more. So. That is uh, that's so cool. I've, uh, having the having the criteria in place to figure out when the proper time for a transition is, and and then being able to be brutally honest with ourselves, uh, I I think is incredibly important. It's it's certainly one that um, that I am constantly having to challenge myself on. To you know the level of self awareness that one needs, and the ability to be honest with with ourselves of when it is the right time for transition. And do we have the stage set properly for, for the next group to, to step in and take on that responsibility? It's a complicated thing. That's the stage setting part is the comp, that's exactly the complicated part, right? You yeah. think you have all the pieces in place and then, you know, it's, ever, it's, it's an evolving and changing landscape, right? And, and so uh, how quickly you can adapt to it. And I think that uh, um, it's, uh, it's it's going to be a really interesting year. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> well, I'm, uh, I have to say I'm very excited for you. I uh, appreciate you being part of IQU Connections. Uh, interesting people, interesting stories. Uh, I really enjoyed the conversation, and I wish you all the best with your, your next steps. So thank you, Jason. Hey, thank you, Scott.